All right, well, what we are doing now, if you are just joining us, uh, we actually just spent a whole year in the Gospel of John, and so you missed that, but you can go back and listen. Um, but at the very end of the Gospel of John, uh, John ends his, his book in chapter 20, 30, uh, and he says it again in chapter 21, but he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And so uh, what we're not going to do is theorize about what Jesus could have done, because he did so many other things that aren't recorded in this book. Who knows what he could have done? That's not what we're going to do, because, you know, he could have made a way back and found his way and time traveled. We don't know. He could have done that. But what we are, what we are going to do is we're going to have a, a gospel mixtape series, and we want to give you uh, a sample or a teaser of all that you may be missing out on in the rest of the gospels. And so to whet your appetite, to uh, have you hunger and thirst uh, for what's happening in the book of Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. And so you could actually uh, want to, to read those on your own. And so we're going to be looking at three books over the next couple weeks. And you might be asking, well, how do you pick one passage to be representative of the, the entire book? Um, and we're not going to do that. That's not, that's not the goal. Uh, we're, we're trying to pick passages that John skipped over. Because John didn't speak about everything. And there are some things, if you remember going through the book of John, he doesn't talk about parables at all. Weirdly, right? He doesn't talk about the Lord's Supper. He doesn't talk about casting out demons. He doesn't talk about lots of things. And one of those is something we are covering today, and that's the Sermon on the Mount. This, this giant sermon that John speaks nothing about. And it's odd that he doesn't because it is the sermon. It's, it's Jesus' magnum opus. Like if you want to get to know Jesus, you want, you want to read this sermon here because this sermon undergirds all of his teachings. Like if you understand the Sermon on the Mount, you understand Jesus. In fact, Philip Yancey wrote this in his The Jesus I Never Knew. The more I study Jesus, the more I realize that the statements contained here in this sermon lie at the heart of his message and if I fail to understand this teaching, I fail to understand him. That's how important I think the Sermon on the Mount is. That's how important the Sermon on the Mount is for us as Christians to embody it. And I, I just ask you this question, do Christians today do that? Are Christians known for embodying the Sermon on the Mount? If you were to walk up to a random stranger and maybe just do it this afternoon, talk to a couple different people and say, you know, when I tell you the word Christian, what's your first thought? What do you think of some responses you might get would be? When you hear the word Christian, what is the first response? It might be fake, might be obnoxious, might be power hungry. Like, <laughs> these aren't the things that we want to be known for, but these are some of the responses you might be expecting. Instead of hearing that they are gracious and that they are loving. Like, sadly today, Christians are known more for being racist and sexist in what they are against than what they are known for and what they stand for. And so we are, we are known for being anti-almost everything, which is just so sad because Jesus is the liberator of the poor. He's the friend of sinners. He is the savior of outcasts. And Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to bring the dead to life. And that's something we should all get around, right? <laughs> That's something we should all be excited about. And this sermon is a picture of what it means to truly be alive. 
It's a truly be alive. And so today I want to give you a little window into the Sermon on the Mount. We're not going to cover the whole sermon because it's a couple chapters. But we're going to look at the Beatitudes, which is, is almost like a little roadmap for the rest of the sermon. And if you understand the Beatitudes, you can get the idea of the rest of the sermon here. And so here's our path today. Here's our three points. Uh, Beatitudes, bankrupt, and hashtag blessed. Beatitudes, bankrupt, and hashtag blessed. Let's go. All right. As we jump into this book, um, as you jump into any book and you don't know where you're at, it's always good to kind of wonder, you know, what's the context? What's happening? Where is Jesus at? Who is he talking to? And so before we go into the sermon, let me just back up into chapter 4 here real quick. In verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. And so what is Jesus doing before he plans to preach the most important sermon <laughs> ever? He's healing every single person. He's, all, of these, all of these people, the, the, the sick, those in pain, those that are paralyzed, those that have demons, these, all these various other diseases, these are the social outcasts in the day. These are the misfits, and they would be considered unclean, and they could not be a part of a community. And these are the people that Jesus is preaching to, and now are following him up on this mountain, and that's who he's preaching the sermon to. Like, he's preaching to, to the most marginalized community here. And he's preaching a message of hope to them. And, so th and if we look at this, this book, this section here, this whole section is marked by this word, blessed. Blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Sometimes when I think of blessed, I think, you know, you're like, it's, it's a hard word for us to translate in our day because we don't use it as much. But we're like, oh, bless your heart. Like when, you're, <laughs> when someone is, is not doing something fully to what, what we expect of them. You're like, oh, that was a good try. Bless your heart. Um, or we think, you know, when the praises go up, the blessings come down, right? We think of <laughs> things like that, just like these blessings that fall like rain on, on us. And we're not understanding what that means. Or maybe we think of when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, whether the blessed are the poor and blessed are the meek and blessed are that the, these are different groups. Like, good for you and good for you. And these are the different groups. But that, I, I don't think this way of thinking about this word blessed actually does justice to what Jesus is talking about here. Because the word blessed actually just means happy. It means blissful. It is, it is happy are these people. Blissful are these people, right? Like this is, this is who this is. And when we think of, the, I mean, maybe the best understanding, the best translation of that would be the people who are in an enviable position, Right? Someone that you look up to. And it's, again, it's not the blessed people, these individual groups. It's, it's all Christians from all over are to manifest all of these characteristics. And, and if, you, if you look at that and you say, that's not me, we have to wonder why. Because a lot of times we look at these characteristics and we go like, well, that's good for you. And you're like, well, I'll just take some of these other characteristics. I'll be a part of the not poor group. And you're like, no, 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 this is a package deal. We're, we're, we have the manager special here. We're all in here. Everything comes together. And so let's look at the, these, these blessings here. In verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, this is a term that I, I wrestled with a lot this week. Because evangelicalism really, really wants to hyper-spiritualize this and emphasize in the spirit. Blessed are the poor in the spirit. And, and, I, and I think we need to feel the sting of what Jesus is actually saying here. Because in Luke, Jesus says, and his account of the Sermon on the Mount is, blessed are the poor, period, full stop, not just in the spirit. And so, yes, sure, a lack of resources doesn't magically make you blessed, and, and you can be poor and not have the spirit, but let me say it this way. African scholar Lazar Rakundwa says it like this, the poor in spirit are those living in the light of hopelessness and despondency in the lives of those who are oppressed by an existing power structures. And so Jesus is trying to say to those ground down by evil structures who put in evil interest rates that are so impossible to pay back that no one could ever pay those, that, that, that back to you, to, to those who are living in a world where it feels like everyone and everything is built to work against you, to you, you are blessed. <laughs> and it sounds so wild, like what? It is blessed to be poor? Well, does that mean I just have to give all of my money away? Jesus literally says that <laughs> to the rich man who's wanting to justify himself and ask, you know, what do I need to do to get into heaven? He said, I've done all of these things. And Jesus says, give all your money away. And he walks away sad because he can't do it. And then Jesus responds in Matthew 19 and says, Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. To be clear, camels cannot go through an eye of a needle. It is impossible. That, that's a hard statement for us to hear. And it's hard, as much as we hate to hear that, as much as we hate to see it, what this is telling us is, is that God has a special place in his heart for the poor and the outcasts. And when we say poor, we're talking about economically poor and sociologically poor. Materially poor and marginalized poor. And Jesus says the poor are in this enviable position that we should look up to. Why? Let me, let me give you this quote from a guy named Gustavo Gutierrez. He says, The poor person, therefore, is not so much the one who has no material goods. Rather, it is he who is not attached to them, even if he does possess them. Ooh. I, I, I love that. I hope you get that. It, it's one who is not attached to them, even if he does possess them. Like, doesn't that, doesn't that sound freeing? That I, I don't, I'm not so attached to the things that I have. I can, they can go away and I'm going to be okay. That I can actually, you know, unclutch my hand from the things that I hold on to so tightly that I'm not attached to them. That's, that's what it means to be poor in spirit. And so therefore all Christians are to be called to be poor in spirit. And how hard is that for us? At whatever financial level we are at to unclutch our hands to the things that we have. And whatever position we're at, it is so hard. And the more money you have, the harder we hold on to it, right? And so 
we should be so identified with the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed that if they suffer, then we suffer and we open up our hands to share with them. That's what we're talking about here, that we are so unattached to the things that we have because we see ourselves united to them and we share with them. And this reveals that we belong to a different kingdom, not of this world, but a kingdom of God. That's one point, <laughs> and I could do a whole sermon on that one point, but we're going we're gonna to move on. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Think of that oxymoronic statement. <laughs> blessed are those who mourn. Happy are those who are sad. Hmm. What? <laughs> that doesn't seem to make sense. Because the, the one thing the world uh, tries to do is it's to shun mourning. Like the world does not, like the whole organization is based on the premise that mourning is something to avoid, right? That the philosophy of the world is forget your troubles and come get happy, right? Like we as Christians have bought into that. And we try to put on a happy face and we try to put on our, our Sunday best and we just, we feel like we cannot mourn to be a Christian. We feel like we have to come in joyfully and happy. Some of y'all are coming in not happy this morning. And I will say, you're welcome here at Mosaic because he says, blessed are those who mourn. But we are in a culture that is so addicted to pleasure and addicted to money and to the thrill and to entertainment, and we just can't sit in the silence. We entertain ourselves to death so we won't feel it. Makes me think of this, this band, 21 Pilots. They say it well. I have these thoughts so often I ought to replace that slot with one I once bought. Somebody stole my car radio and now I just sit in silence. Sometimes quiet is violent, right? <laughs> I love that line because someone stole his car radio and now he has to sit in just the silence. And that's violent to him because he has to think and he has to feel. You have to feel your sadness. You have to feel all those emotions and... <laughs> To forget all that's real, we just turn the music on. Or what if someone stole your phone? Maybe not the car radio. How bad would you feel? Like, ah, uh, I have nothing to do when I'm awkwardly sitting here. It is such, it is such a, a, thing, a tool to medicate us, isn't it? We feel better. We're like, okay, now I have this. Like, we're now forced to deal with what is real. And, and... To be a Christian, what Jesus is saying is to mourn. The true Christian is one who mourns. Mourns what? Mourns how mixed your motives are and desires are. Mourns because of the hurt you've caused to the people that you love most. Mourns because you're, you're actually concerned about the state of the world that we live in. You're mourning because you're like Jesus at the grave of Lazarus or maybe at the grave of someone you know and love. You're truly mourning over them. It's okay to mourn. In fact, it is encouraged to do so. Do we mourn as Christians? I, I worry distraction and apathy are, is, is killing the Christian's mourning. We, we, we don't want to go there. Like, do we care about landfills and endangered animals? Do we care about injustices and sins in our world? Do we care about the sin in our own hearts? The psalmist says in Psalm 119, streams of tears flow from my eyes for your law is not obeyed. I hope you can cherish a verse like that. 
and say, streams of tears flow from my eyes because I just see so much evil in the world. And we can relate. And so do we mourn? Well, this, this blessed sermon is getting really good, right? <laughs> Let's keep going. Verse 5, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And you're like, oh, great. <laughs> Things have looked so positive so far. And we think meekness, we think weakness, right? It's kind of how we think of meekness. We think it's shyness and lacking a backbone, but that's not weak meekness at all. Meekness is not those things. Meekness is just a self, is, is a humble self-forgetfulness. Meek people aren't thinking about themselves, and so they're not worried when you speak about them. They're not worried about what others say about them because they're not worried about what they, think, what they even think of themselves. Some translate meekness as, as gentle. And don't, don't mistake gentle for weak, right? There's a great strength in being that gentle. And so we're not even halfway through Jesus' sermon, and, and, and I'm wondering, does this even describe Christianity today? When we look at Christianity today, it feels like we want to be seen as successful and happy and prosperous and tough, not, not poor, mourning, and weak. That doesn't feel like that describes American Christianity. And so when I look at this, I worry, this doesn't feel like American Christianity, nor, and this is the hard part, if you're honest with yourself, this doesn't feel like this describes my own heart. As you read the Sermon on the Mount, you start to worry is this me? Am I even on the same mountain as Jesus? And that's when we come to our second point, bankrupt. Maybe you can identify as poor. Maybe, maybe, you, can, maybe you scroll through Twitter and you see all that there is to mourn in the world. And maybe you are meek, but I would say that when we get to verse 6, I just don't buy it. Verse 6 is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Do you, <laughs> hunger and thirst, after what? After wealth, after money, after status, after position, after publicity? Not at all. Hunger and thirst after righteousness, which means rightness. It's to be right with God. And so do you actually hunger and thirst after rightness the same way you hunger and thirst if you're starved? If you're starved, you desperately want food, right? If you're thirsty, you need that water. Do you want righteousness in that same way? Or are you actually looking for excuses to indulge sins? Finding ways to get away with it. Do we actually hunger for this? Like, like do you long to get rid of the temptations? What about social righteousness? Another way of talking about that is social justice. How much do we care about making things fair, right, and equitable? In Jackson, Mississippi, and it's 160,000 residents, they were without clean water. Like, unheard of to think about. This whole city without clean water, and to this day, today, they still have to boil their water to be able to drink it. And it could have been prevented if the blessed would have truly hungered and thirst after righteousness in their city for all people. But because it was thought of as not our issue, this is where the city is in this moment. And we start to think, yeah, this is the type of people we want to be. We want to be people that, that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. And maybe I've been watching too much college game day, but I want to say like Lee Corso, not so fast. Not so fast. Now, there was an English professor at, at probably 
the most delightful, beautiful university here in this land, um, just down the road, actually. Um, I mean, the ones here are great, but there's this one just down the road in Texas A&M, not yet on the quote, um, <laughs> who, who assigned her freshman English class uh, a, an essay on the Sermon on the Mount. And, and to her surprise, almost every single student hated the Sermon on the Mount. I know you're like, of course, they're Aggies, but like... <laughs> We're like, okay, we're in the Bible Belt, so you would expect there at least be some that would go like, okay, maybe I don't like Jesus, but like the Sermon on the Mount, there's like a lot of good like moral teachings in there, right? And so you would expect that, but that's not what she got. What she got was this. Here's a quote from one of the students. I do not like the essay, The Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. <laughs> and I just love just... The way they wrote this, it has like a lot of Dr. Seuss vibes here, where it's like, I do not like them, Sam, I am. I do not like the green eggs and ham. <laughs> oh, these Aggies, okay. <laughs> but the students felt that something was, was drawing them to something higher, and it made them feel like they had to be perfect after reading the Sermon on the Mount. Another student wrote this, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman as adultery that is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. <sighs> unhuman. Uh, don't, don't you love these Aggies? Okay. But in the end, the common thread amongst the students was this. Not, oh, I love how the Sermon on the Mount it displays the, the, the way the world should be. The, the result at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after reading it, was save me from the Sermon on the Mount. Save me from that because I cannot live up to that. Like, like part of us all really, after reading this, go like, yes, I want that to be true. I want that to be the world we live in for other people. Like, I want them to live that way, but personally, I need a lot more grace and mercy, right? This is how we, this is, this is how we believe. Like, do I really think it is, calling someone an idiot is equivalent to murder? Am I really guilty of murder? Am I really supposed to turn the other cheek when someone slaps me? Like, Jesus can't be serious. And you're right. In your own power, this is impossible. Like, but that's why I would say, go back to that very first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Another way of saying that is, blessed are the bankrupt. Blessed are the bankrupt. You ever been bankrupt? You ever, you ever overdrafted? We have in our house. Uh, you ever considered yourself bankrupt? When you view yourself as you go before the Lord, how do you view yourself? Do you view yourself as, I'm a pretty good person? Yes, I've done bad things. Everyone, everyone says that. Like, we've all made mistakes, but I've also done some good things. And therefore, it feels like I've got some money in the bank when I go before the Lord. And so, yeah, I'm, a, I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. And so I feel confident walking in front of the Lord and saying, here's my goodness. Do you feel that way? If that's true, then we will not hunger and thirst for righteousness because we already have it. We already have our own rightness. We've proven in our eyes of what we think it means to be right and to be good. When you're truly hungry, what do you do? You don't go plant seeds and hope that the, the, the plant will sprout real quick. You don't go buy a farm and say, now I'll, I'm hungry, I'll buy a farm. No, when you're hungry, you go and ask for food now. 
You want the food now. If you're experiencing homelessness, you are pleading for food and, and water now because you need to be fed now. And only those who know that they are bankrupt, who know they are sinners, who have truly offended God, can come to him and beg for righteousness to be given to them. Like, you just come to the Lord and say, Lord, please, I beg of you. I need you. I've hit rock bottom, and I'm banking on nothing but your grace in this moment. Now, some of us may feel like that's too harsh of a way to talk about our relationship with the Lord, that we come to him and we're bankrupt. But let me just talk about this. Let me give you an example here. Let's say your coworker, let's say maybe a sister of yours or someone you know, um, maybe it's a, you know, a friend, calls you up and you've had conflict with them. I'm sure one of you can think of someone you've had conflict with. And they, they call you up and they say, hey, I know things aren't good between us. Can we get together? Let's, let, let's go get lunch. And you're like, oh, they initiated that. I, that's a good sign. That's positive. And you're like, let's go. Let's get together. And when you get, to, when you get to sit in front of them, they come before you and they say something like, hey, I'm sorry I, I said all those things about you, but you also did all those things that you did, and it kind of forced my hand. How does that apology feel right now? Feels, feels a little weak, right? You're starting to bubble up in some anger right now. You're like, I wasted my time for this. <laughs> what, what, what if they made the apology something like, you've heard this probably, I'm sorry you feel that way. Mm. <laughs> and you're just, the, the anger, it's infuriating because you don't want to hear that, right? True remorse doesn't begin with your rightness, the reasons you did something. True remorse is bankrupt of any justifications. It is simply, I've got nothing. I can't believe I did that to you. I am sorry. And I'm begging for you to forgive me. And that's how we have to come before the Lord. Like I, I am bankrupt of any reasons for what I did. And I'm hungering and I'm thirsting. Like I, I need a cup of water. I need your righteousness in this moment because I'm not right in this moment. Lord, would you give it? And the promise of this blessing is right after that, where God makes provision, and he says, and you will be filled, and you will be satisfied. <laughs> and that's what Jesus does on our, half, on our behalf, that when we come to him and say, Lord, I'm bankrupt, I need your righteousness, the Lord provides, Jesus provides, and that's when we come to our last point here, hashtag blessed. Yes, it's a Bruno Mars line, but it's, it's the picture of the good life, right? It, when you think of the blessed life, the good life, you know, typically we think of the American dream, someone who started from the bottom and now they've come to the top, right? We think of someone who, who is blessed, we think they have everything. They have, they have the job, they have the family, they have all the resources. That's someone who we think is blessed, but that's not the way Jesus describes being blessed. He says, the poor, the mourning, the meek, these are characteristics that are truly enviable, that we actually want, that are actually better. And that's what I want us to see, to see today, that this is a counterintuitive happiness, a different view of success. The world says success is by winning and taking and sex and money and all by your strength. And Jesus says, that has nothing to do with me. Success, that, that, that's not that. I mean, are we, are we Sermon on the Mount Christians or not? 
I, I start to wonder, like, the, the people we should want to be are the ones, as Jesus says, are the ones who are bottomed out, the ones who are failures. Jesus might as well have said, blessed are the losers. You're like, oh, I'm in that group. <laughs> How lucky is it be to be a deadbeat? <laughs> I mean, before the sermon tells you what to do, it tells you who to be. And blessed are the defeated who rely solely on Christ. And why is that blessed? And he gives you all the hope and all the promises after each blessing. He says, for there, in verse 4, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 5, why, why blessed when you're to mourn? For they will be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the promised land, is what it's talking about there. Blessed are, in 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled or truly satisfied. I mean, are you seeing how good it is here? Let's keep going. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And mercy is active. It's not just, I feel bad for you. Mercy, a, a merciful person is moved to act to relieve suffering. And the best example of that is Jesus moving to act to relieve your suffering. Right? This is the beautiful picture that is being painted for us. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, meaning kind of single-minded, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And oh, that's a painful one for many of us. Because how many of us wish it said, blessed are the peacekeepers? Come on, Enneagram 9s unite. <laughs> blessed are the peacemakers is very different from blessed are the peacekeepers, right? Blessed peacekeepers maintain the status quo. Peacemakers are change agents working for peace. Peacemakers call out racism and sexism even when it's uncomfortable. Did you know that, that proponents of Jim Crow were known as peacekeepers? They were the peacekeepers. And they felt that separate water fountains and separate restaurants and separate schools was a good viable compromise to newly freed black Americans as they start to live with white Americans. And so to keep the peace in that day was to have them separate but equal, as they might try to say. But Martin Luther King Jr. and many others like him were not peacekeepers, they were peacemakers. Hallelujah. They fought so hard for equity that they were on the FBI's wanted list and watch list. They were frequently arrested and targeted and to the point where he gets shot and killed for making peace. Does that sound like the peacemaking that we usually think of? No, we usually think keeping peace. And so do you want to live in a world where everyone just keeps the peace? That's the world, that's the way the world wants us to live. And the peacekeepers, oddly, are the ones who end up killing Jesus. Because anytime someone tries to make peace and upend the status quo, the world can't have it. And so then the world, these peacekeepers, are the ones who kill Jesus. And that's why this blessing goes from, from peacemaking to persecution in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so it's no accident that you move from peacemaking to persecution. Those two are tied together. The status quo can't allow it to be upended. And now let's be clear. They're persecuted for righteousness' sake. They're not persecuted because they're insufferable to be around. 
Christians are so quick to call the persecution card and go like, ah, I'm just being so persecuted. Maybe it's just a needed rebuke that you needed as a Christian. We got to be careful with that. And I think today, the church, we are going through a pruning process. The American church is going through a big pruning process, and we could lament and go, oh, woe is us. We are losing our, 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 our foothold in this world. Like, we need to go take dominion of, of, of all that's here, that's left of us. We could do that, or we could go, given all the scandals that have happened in the church, maybe we should lament at what we have done. And the light that is now being shown on the church is the best disinfectant that there could be. And this is a good thing that's happening right now because it's, it's a reformation that's happening right now. There's a reformation that's happening in the church. And you know what happened when the church went for the reformation the first time? I'm sure the church at that time did not think that was a good thing. The church at that time would have said, you're ruining the good thing we had going. And Martin Luther and others would have said, good. <laughs> We're glad we could ruin that. Because to the oppressed, reformation is liberation. Right? <laughs> to the oppressed, reformation is liberation. And Jesus is in the business of liberating. He makes peace. And the religious, religious leaders killed him for it. But little did they know that in that moment of killing him for it, this little act would actually multiply his liberation for generations to come. You can't stop it. And this is why this person, the blessed, are to be envied. Because there's nothing you can do to these people. Like, they're invincible. Yes, they may be sorrowful, but they're not miserable. Like, they, they, they're, they're, yes, they may be serious, but they're never cold. There's a gravity and a warmth to these Christians, for they know what it means to be poor and yet have everything. If you met someone like this who is poor but has everything, you realize you can't do anything, you can't take anything away from them. They have it all. And so they know what it means to have a God who will comfort them when they are mourning. Do you know what that means? And so the, the application of today's sermon is, is very simple. It's the three points here. It's just be bankrupt and blessed. Be bankrupt and blessed. Be, meaning look at these attitudes that, that are supposed to describe Christians and use it as a measure. Does that describe you? Do they describe who you are? If you look at these and you think, man, maybe I'm on a different mountain. Like, I don't think that's me at all. Then I would encourage you to come to the second point of being bankrupt. And of, and of crying out to Jesus, Lord, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. And when you cry out, save me from it, he will save you to it. When you look at the high standards of the law and you think, Lord, I cannot keep that. And he says, I will save you from it, from the conviction of you not meeting those standards, but then I will save you to it, and you will live this out. And you will, in a remarkable way, you will be the blessed person. You will become the person that you wanted to be, and you'll become the person that you want your community to be when you be bankrupt and blessed. I pray, that, I pray this for us. I pray this for, the, for this community, but I pray this for the church here in Waco in America, that we would be people of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me pray for us.